Section 29 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 2. 5. For the next three months and more, Lawrence was not seen at Chapel Court. Even to the garden suburb he no longer came. A single, accidental meeting, which Joanna had with him about six weeks after that evening in January, served only to strengthen her conclusion that he had dropped out of her life. It happened that Ollie's mother, Mrs Garland, was ill in bed and had asked Joanna to deliver some copy for her in Fleet Street. Until she was at the very door of the office, Joanna had not known that Mrs. Garland's paper occupied the same building as the Sunday budget for which Lawrence worked. Still, it seemed improbable that she should come across him. He was not likely to be there. And in any case, the budget office was on the third floor, while her errand was on the second. She was taken aback when immediately after her handing Mrs. Garland's copy to the small imp at that moment in charge of the tape room, an inner glass door was opened and laughing over some unknown jest, two men came out, one of the two being Lawrence. With a sudden scarlet in her cheeks, Joanna bowed uncertainly, but if Lawrence too was taken at a disadvantage, he hardly showed it. Leaving the editor to melt back into his glass room, he came across to her, exhibited ordinary friendly surprise at her presence, heard the reason of it, chatted a minute or two with cool detachment, and as soon as he could do so politely, ran back to remind the man within of some forgotten matter. As Joanna descended the stairs, she again heard his voice and the others raised in exclusive mirth. She had hardly recognised her lost friend in this easy, keen, absorbed young man. Indeed, and indeed, men were to be envied in their work. Lawrence might protest as he liked that there was no satisfaction in it, no doubt, while he was with her, he had felt it so. But his face, both now and on call night, had told a different story. On her way home, she was more than ever convinced that she had at last made a clean break between herself and Lawrence. Further, she felt sure that Lawrence was not averse to her knowing it. 6. So she went on, with the bitter and deathly course, which accorded with her ideas of faithfulness. She was upheld in it by her one conscious belief, the belief that she loved Lewis. When one morning in May, Mr. Moon summoned her to answer a telephone call in the shop below, Joanna guessed it must be from Lewis. His way was to telephone rather than to write, and it was five days since she had seen him. Always at the end of three days, they were both restless for sight and sound of each other. She ran downstairs, eager and trembling for his message as ever. No sooner had she heard it than the familiar office, with its urns and its samples of stone and wood, spun darkly round her, and she had to hang her head for faintness. Lewis was going to Edinburgh next day, and he wanted her to come with him. Except for a peculiar, almost angry note in his voice, he might have been proposing that she should take a walk with him in the park. Yet this was the first time he had ever asked her to go away with him. 
Both of them hitherto had fought shy of anything suggestive of the ordinary intrigue. Wherever Joanna was, Lewis had known he could come without fear or shame, and there had been their country walks. But for anything else, Joanna had instinctively waited till their going should be a real departure. Tacitly, Lewis had understood this and had acquiesced. They had let slip many opportunities. But here he was, all of a sudden asking her to take a real journey with him, and at the very peremptoriness of the request, her heart cried out in hope. He could not well tell her so much in words at this moment, but might not this be his way of coming to what she longed and lived for? Half fainting, she said she would go, and they made arrangements for meeting. Baldly they fixed time and place. By not a word did they betray the unusual nature of their decision. It was her lover's plan for the next morning that she should take an early train as far as Peterborough, and there wait for the two o'clock express by which he was travelling. From then on they would be safe. In Edinburgh the following day he would hurry over the event which was taking him north, the unveiling of some panels of his, in which from their earliest drawings Joanna had taken a lively interest, and after that he would be free. They could go anywhere, do anything, be all the time together. As she packed her travelling case, Joanna had to fight down a certain nausea by pretending to herself that the whole thing was an adventure, thrilling and sweet, above all, rather humorous and dashing. That she and Lewis should go together to Edinburgh of all places, was there not a nice irony in that? A delightful stroke of defiance? But really, from the moment of agreement, her heart was sick with apprehension. The crisis of their loves was at hand. She knew it. And she was certain that Lewis also knew. 7. At Peterborough she had four hours to wait for the train that was to bring Lewis. She tried to eat, but could not, so left the station. Walking aimlessly in the unknown streets, she found herself looking about her and listening, like one who has never looked or listened before. The experience of sight was intense, almost like pain, and each sound came unprotected to her ears as if thick veils had been drawn away between her and the world. Even the movements of people, the groupings of buildings, the ways in which the clouds were arranged, were like words or sentences piercingly spoken. Arrowy voices were aimed at her from all sides. She was a frail, silken banner, riddled and tattered by well-directed shafts. She was more alive to the world of sense than would long be endurable. Coming to a bridge, she stood, leaning over the parapet, as if to find a refuge in the steadiness, the simplicity of flowing water. The air was laden with sun and dust. The leaden sunshine weighed everything down. Only on the water was it pointed with silver. From an opening far up in a flour mill, men were loading a barge with sacks. The sacks were sent flying down two very long planks, which, bending under their own slim weight, reached from the high doorway to the deck of the barge. When she had gazed a while, still in that strange helplessness of receptivity, one of the men who was in the barge, helping to pile up the sacks, noticed her. He rubbed the sweat from his forehead with his arm, 
smiling intently up at her, and must have said a word to his mates, for they too looked up amid their cloud of flour and stopped working for a moment. And Joanna, before she drifted on, treasured their gazes like a farewell. A dreadful sense of approaching death was upon her. She was looking her last on the world in which she had lived till now, was severing all human contacts one by one. Already her body seemed near to dissolution. In absolute terror, she entered a church and knelt down. She had not even realised that it was the cathedral. Mechanical with fear, she began to repeat the prayers of childhood. This night I lay me, she began, then prayed for her mother, for Georgie, Lynette and Sholto. Bless poor Mario, bless my Louis, bless Lawrence, help me to be good, she murmured swiftly. And so that she might include enemies in her blessing, she tried to bring in Mrs. Pender's name. May we all have what is best for our souls and bodies, she concluded, using a phrase she had heard a thousand times on her mother's lips. Suddenly then, as she cowered in the dark and lofty cathedral, it seemed to Joanna that she saw the Lord on his throne, and that he was preparing to answer her prayer for herself, not with his smile, but with his sword. She could feel beforehand the stab that would destroy her, but she would not shrink. Rather would she lift up her breast to receive it. If it was God's will to slay her, then must she be slain. Not for nothing was she Julie Erskine's daughter. 8. She had been more than half an hour in the station when the train from London came in. At the sight of her lover leaning from the carriage window looking out for her, all her fears, all she had just gone through, became absurd. Here was the old, solid world claiming her. She could still cling to it. She rushed forward, and Lewis came in his rather fussy way to meet her. But when she had taken her place beside him, and the crowded journey northward was resumed, Joanna knew that she would have given anything not to have come. It was not because there were other people in their compartment, a man and two women. It was not because the women, who were evidently well disposed toward Lewis, looked distrustfully at the newcomer. Joanna would not have minded these things if only Lewis had stood by her. She remembered the many happy hours they had spent in trains, going out to country places for their walks, and some of the most memorable had been merely enhanced by the presence of other people as by every other fetter of circumstance. Lewis, when he wished, could give her such a sense of the secret warmth between them that the very disadvantages which might most easily have blown up upon their pleasure added a zest. Why then today, after the first flush of greeting, should he lapse away from her in a strange, hostile exhaustion? The unexpectedness of it paralysed her. His looks were like axes that had been sharpened in secret to sever the bond between them and he left her quite exposed to the disapproval and curiosity of these onlookers. Was it for this that he had asked her to come away with him? It would have helped her somewhat if she could have accused him simply, but beyond all easy argument she knew that Lewis no less than she was taken unaware. It was one of these things, by no means simple in themselves, 
which happened suddenly and, as it were, involuntarily. Lewis, she was positive, had invited her in good faith. But somewhere a spring had clicked, and here they were, both in some cruel trap, baffling to him as to her. For a while he made conversation. He had been up half the night, he told her, working at a belated drawing so that it might be in the publisher's hands that day. Up half the night, and yet had had to rise early this morning to finish it. Such a brute it had turned out. Now he was dead tired. Again and again he repeated how tired he was. Dead tired. Down and out. A dead-beat old man. His reiteration chilled her, for he did not want sympathy, that he made clear. Persistently he used his tiredness not to draw her to him, as he might have done, but to push her farther and farther away. That he was very tired she pitifully knew. His face was grey and lined with weariness. Before strangers, however, they could have no real talk, and presently Lewis fell asleep in his corner. Joanna then went out into the corridor and stood there a long time, seeing the flying landscape through sheets of tears. For a part of the way, the train ran beside the sea, and the tide was far out, leaving bare the great clean stretches of sand. The tide, that was what Lewis was like in his love. The shoreward waves had been so strong that she had not realised the ebb of the whole ocean of his being. He was too old. He had said it, and she had shrunk from it with closed eyes. He was too old, an ebbing, dying man. No power could alter that grievous, icy fact. She saw that now. And yet, and yet, she cried out that she loved him. If he would but allow her to share in this death of his, she would surely go through with it. She loved him so much, so much did she long to be faithful. As the landscape darkened, however, the tears stiffening painfully on Joanna's face, and Lewis still slept on in unconsciousness, she became subject for a time to less exalted feelings. What right? she asked herself angrily. Had this man so to humiliate her? He need not have suggested her coming today, but having done so, whatever his feelings, he should have deferred this treacherous blow. In the circumstances, it was mean and shameful of him. She would not tamely submit to it. And she actually allowed herself to be beaten up into what is often known as spirit, by remembering with what difficulty she had got together the money for her ticket. This mood, the more wretched for being foreign to her nature, was aggravated by Lewis's behaviour in the restaurant car during dinner. As always, he revived, superficially at least, under the stimulus of food, but on this occasion, whatever energy he thus gained was vindictive. Having glanced without remark at his companion's inflamed eyes, he proceeded to talk with a certain vivacity of their fellow travellers. He pointed out the extraordinary likeness between the man in the corner and a bust of the youthful Nero in the British Museum. And had Joanna noticed the clear-eyed pretty girl who sat opposite to him? Joanna had of course noticed her, and with that wistful admiration we accord, when deeply harrowed ourselves, 
to one who is as yet untouched by life. The girl in question was merry, quite young, and of a type essentially English. At any other time, Joanna would have listened equably to any praise of her, but today there was an element in Lewis which made his eulogy of this other unendurable. As clearly as his weary glance had earlier showed Joanna that her new way of wearing her hair with a fringe, impulsively adopted that morning, was distasteful to him, so clearly did he now seize upon this nice young thing's charm as an instrument of repudiation. At his pointed enthusiasm, Joanna arose from her untasted dinner and stumbled along the cruelly swaying corridor till she reached an empty compartment. Here Lewis followed her, though not at once. He was relieved to see that she was not crying, and indeed she had been struggling hard in the interval to gather some steadiness. He sat down opposite to her without a word, only making a warmer gesture than he had yet used that day as he bent forward and brushed some grits from her skirts with his bare hand. What's wrong? I don't know. It was wonderful, though, how his action freed her from all pettier exasperation. Lewis, she said in a low voice, innocent of resentment, why did you ask me to come today? You shouldn't have asked me. You needn't have. You might have told me you had changed toward me. When did you change? Lewis stirred unhappily before speaking. But I haven't changed toward you, he replied at length. That is, not that I know of. If I've changed, as you say, I've changed somehow to myself rather than to you. I don't myself know what has gone wrong. It's true, something seems to have broken in me, just gone foot. I can't explain. You mean now? Joanna asked in mournful wonder. All of a sudden? Since this morning? I have told you I don't know. He was becoming restive again. I certainly was unaware of it before. You must know that I wouldn't have. As I say, I can't explain it to myself. It's just one of these things there's apparently no accounting for. There seems nothing to be said. Truly, there seemed nothing. Or if, after a time, there might have seemed something, it was prevented by the arrival just then from dinner of the rightful occupants of the compartment into which Joanna had drifted. She and Lewis had no choice now but to return to their own carriage, where the youthful Nero and the pretty girl and her mamma were already reinstalled. And before many minutes were gone, Lewis lapsed again into the disheartening, jaded sleep. 9. They stood for a few minutes on the platform at Waverley Station, chilled and uncertain. Lewis had already told her that an artist friend half expected him for the night. You had better go to him, said Joanna tonelessly. I know you hate hotels, and you have a cold, besides being so tired. You had better go to him, Lewis. And she shivered in the draughty place. Lewis, too, was miserably chilled after his cramped doze in the train. His cold felt many degrees worse. He hesitated with his reply, and she waited, not quite hopeless yet, in spite of her own suggestion. Was it possible 
that he should leave her now? Was it in common kindness possible? Yet she saw the callousness of his worn and clouded face. But what about you? he asked. With so simple a question did he deal out death to her, finally, unmistakably. What about you? he repeated stupidly. Joanna received the wound without a sign. I'll be all right, she heard herself say. I can get a room at the station hotel. She remembered once seeing Harry Carey enacted in a Japanese play, remembered the actor's queer silence when the dagger first ran into his body up to the hilt. It was a silence in which he had continued his beautifully ordered movements. Only when the dagger was withdrawn had he lost control and expired in a bubble of blood. Now she only wanted to be alone. Lewis, too, she could see, was longing to be gone from her, but he found it difficult to move. Joanna, he paid her his tribute, you are a generous woman, the most generous I ever knew. At that, her smile twisted her mouth for a moment, and again they were standing, looking fixedly, strangely at each other. He had a moment of cowardly fondness and took her limp hand. After four tomorrow I should be free, he said. I'll call or send a message the instant I can. I wish things were different, do you see? But, my child, he continued with a violent shudder, the draught in this place, it's icy. The old man will drop dead in a minute. There's a cab. Hi there. I'll be off. Till tomorrow, old girl. Take care of yourself. They shook hands like acquaintances. Lewis, comically, as Joanna had to think, lifting his hat. She saw him cross the pavement with a touch of his old jauntiness and get into the cab. It rumbled away. She walked carefully to the hotel. Unless she walked very carefully, she must surely reel or fall down. It seemed to her that Lewis had broken her right across with his hands. It would not do if people were to see that she was broken right across. She must keep upright till she got into a place by herself. But even when the hotel attendant had left her alone in a great, high, inimical box of a bedroom, she continued to move with circumspection. When she unpacked her nightdress, she noticed an odd thing. The low neck was threaded with a piece of mauve ribbon, taken from one of her mother's funeral wreaths. How had it ever come to be there, she could not think. She must have used it unconsciously, not even knowing that she possessed it, though she now recognised it at once. She let it be. All night she lay a broken thing, hearing the banging and shunting of trains. And her feet were like stones. Now and again a kind of ague took her. She could not weep, could not think, could hardly even feel. There was in her no real anger against Lewis. The waves of fury that had overwhelmed her from time to time were all from the outside and inessential. What really concerned her was that the menace of death, which had been with her all these months, was now fulfilled in her. Lewis was no more than the instrument in a proceeding as far beyond his own control 
as her. 10. Neither then nor afterwards was Joanna able to account for her actions of the following day. They seemed merely automatic. There was no real life left in her. At eight in the morning, having dozed a very little during the last hour, she dressed herself, and with that factitious access of spirits, rather light-headed, which comes to some people as one of the phases before collapse, she paid her bill and left the hotel. Lewis would send his message, or more probably would come himself, and he would find her gone. That was something. She could not think of London, however, while he was still in Edinburgh, so she walked stupidly about, always carrying with her her bag which grew heavier and heavier. It occurred to her that she had better look for a room. She began accordingly to make inquiries wherever she saw a card in a window, but in the district where she happened to be wandering, lodgings were of the cheap, theatrical sort, and she fled time after time from the vision of a sordid, unmade bed and an empty tumbler of the night before on a bedside table covered with circular stains. At length, returning to the other side of Princess Street, she found what she sought in a small and friendly temperance hotel. Here she dropped her bag with relief, then went out, bought a bunch of wallflowers, dark red and yellow, which had caught her eye at the street corner earlier, and put them in water on the dressing table of her new quarters. A passionate gratitude welled in her for these warm, sweet flowers with their homely air. They were her only friends, and she wished for no others. At luncheon time, she followed the general drift into the coffee room, and when food was set before her, she was surprised to find she could not eat. She was more than surprised, she was suddenly afraid. She began to fear, as if it was something quite disjoined from herself, for her willing body. But though she tried methodically, her gorge rose at each mouthful, and she had to stop. The bill of fare appalled her. Boiled cod, minced collops, cornflour pudding. She wished there were some food she had never yet tasted. Food with a new, unearthly flavour. Food ambrosial, that would melt into her dry, bitter mouth without effort. She had been dimly conscious of a great many black coats in the room, giving the place an atmosphere that was both familiar and depressing. Then scraps of talk came to her from the next table, where sat a frizzy-haired young minister. He had just been assuring his wife that they were in ample time for their train. I'm sorry to miss the closing address tonight, he went on. I doubt we won't see the old man again in this world. With that halo of snow-white hair, Dr. Rankin makes a very dignified moderator, said the wife. But frail, frail, returned the husband. It is a marvel to everyone how he has carried through the ten days. The month of May. Black-coated figures everywhere, chattering cheerfully like a colony of starlings. Why, of course, it was the great assembly. Not since the year of her father's death had the general assembly existed for Joanna, so that a bewildering cloud of reminiscence was evoked in her by the casual discovery that it was even now in progress, and an added sharpness was given to memory by the mention of Dr. Rankin's name. The general assembly 
and Dr. Rankin as moderator. Looking at the hearty ministerial feeders around her, Joanna felt more than ever a ghost. Within the next half hour, she was drawn back by an obstinate revival of hope to the station hotel. Here there was a telegram for her, and she was further informed that a gentleman had telephoned at breakfast time, had telephoned again later, had called at about twelve o'clock, but had left no message. As she tore open Lewis's telegram, she was almost ready to come to life again. Was it all a mistake? Was she a fool, so to have taken to heart a momentary state of fatigue? She was at the mercy of a sickening backwash of the life she thought to have parted from. Lewis asked her to meet him at half-past twelve. There was only the bare request. It was now half-past two. She went out again, desperate to find him, utterly unable to comprehend her own actions of the morning by which she had brought this about. And in Princess Street, close by the Scott Monument, she was almost run into by a figure from which long scarves and mulberry-coloured draperies fluttered picturesquely in the east wind. It was Mildred Lovett. "'You here, my dear girl!' cried the little woman. But why were you not with us? We have just given Lewis Pender such a send-off. You know, his panels were being unveiled today at the new Nicholson Hall. The seasons. To my mind, he's never done anything better. But I needn't tell you. I was not the only one to recognise the face and figure of spring. After the unveiling, we gave him a luncheon party, and as he had to go by the two o'clock train, we all went and saw him off. He had a frightful cold, poor man, but I think we succeeded in cheering him up a little. You should have been with us, Joanna. Fancy your being in Edinburgh. Somehow, Joanna excused herself and made her escape. Lewis was gone. It was all over. No more hope. Though it had been by her own doing that she had not seen him again, she did not deceive herself on that account. If he had wanted to see her from any other motive than remorseful kindness, he would have waited longer. He must have remembered that he had mentioned four as the hour he would be free. Yet he had left no further message at the hotel. He had brought her to Edinburgh and had left her there alone. He had been glad, no doubt, to escape so easily. That she could do anything else now than return to her hotel for the night never occurred to her. Lewis was gone, but for herself, as yet, trains to London had no existence. The last grain of her initiative was gone. Immediate shelter was all she could think of. Hour after hour passed till night came. Still she had not swallowed a morsel of food, and as she lay, once more sleepless on a strange bed, with a labouring heart, and lungs unable to compass the top of a breath for all their continual deep sighing, she was again beset by that sudden fear for her body. It was full of strange pains. Suppose it were to take ill here in the hotel. Suppose it were to die. Two o'clock struck from a church outside. Three o'clock. Four o'clock. She lacked the courage to rouse strangers at this hour. Yet she felt so ill, so sinking all at once, that by the usual waking time she was sure she would be lastingly stricken.
Without some outside help, she would be very ill, or mad, or dead by dawn. Her flesh would not hold out so long. But why should it hold out? Was it not right that the vessel, no longer informed by the spirit, should fly asunder? Would not its now useless particles be thrown back swiftly among the other broken potsherds, diminished not one whit for the unceasing purposes of creation? As for the spirit, truly one need never fear for that. The spirit could neither be defrauded nor added unto. It needed no salvation and no pity, returning always to its place till it should be breathed again into some new vessel fashioned from the immemorial stuff of the old. It was she only, Joanna, she, herself, that would be no more if her body were now to perish. Was this the law? Was this what her mother had called the will of God? If so, she would yield herself to it, and in faith would even cease utterly to be. She had lived a little. Her eyes had beheld the sun. Un peu d'amour, et puis bonjour. That was as Lewis saw it, and not Lewis only, but a great mass of the world's sages and poets. Was it not enough? Truly it was a good deal. Truly it had its beauty of pathos, its melancholy fascination, its own deathly sweet flower of satisfaction. But it was not enough. Not at least for her. It was no more enough for her than her mother's transference of fulfilment to another world of sheer spirit had been, nor than Georgie's relinquishment to the next generation. And was it indeed a thing ordained any more than they? Had it not been said, My word shall not return unto me void? What was oneself, if not a word? Oneself was not all spirit, as Julie had believed. No self could be, without the body, without the form of clay into which a puff of spirit had gone from God's mouth. In breath alone there is no word. The word comes by the conscious moulding of the lips, by that which gives a preconceived shape to the formless issuing forth of breath. Grasping this, Joanna was yet more terrified. At first it had seemed to her that by the untimely death of her body, her proper self would cease to be. Now she saw that if her body dissolved into its elements at that moment, she would more truly never have been at all. For that fusion between flesh and spirit, in which alone is absolute being, had not taken place in her as yet. The spirit had been in her. The form of the word she had been designed to utter had been hers. But the two had stayed apart, and now they would go their several unfertile ways. Here was annulment indeed. Here was the empty returning of the word which God hated. Before ceasing to be, she must be. And to that end, the disruption of her body must be deferred yet a while. The flesh must be kept from its separate extinction till it had lived again and anew, interpenetrated by the returning spirit and so serving its purpose. The question that now grew every moment more urgent was how this might be done. How save her body when she could neither rest nor eat nor sleep? While she did nothing but think, 
The unraveling was steadily going forward. Soon she would be too late. As these fears swept her distracted being, memories of Aunt Purdy began to present themselves. Tentative at first, they became persistent. Aunt Purdy had spoken of fleshly renewal, of death, of a new birth. She had spoken much and with authority of unseen forces that were in the air about us, ever in attendance to help or to hinder. And what was it that Aunt Purdy had said about the body being as a string of beads, a shock of ripe corn, of its capacity for relapsing into a motion of such fine degrees that it was a kind of living stillness in which restoration came to it from every side? Joanna slipped out of bed. She could smell the wallflowers on the dressing table. The room was not quite dark, but of a negative grey dimness filled with triangular shadows. As she drooped and sank and came limply to the floor like a heap of grain that is softly flung down, she thought involuntarily of a field in which the meek sheaves are bowed together. She herself had fallen into something of the posture of an oriental at prayer, and as she had fallen, so she remained a long while at rest. Her lax thighs ached violently, and her loins were wrung with a new pain as if some poison had suddenly revealed its course. But gradually the ache grew less and less, and when it was gone, instinctively as a woodland creature turns in its sleep, she let herself roll with a gentle, heavy movement onto her back. Her limbs, all slack, went sliding and quivering their length upon the grey floor. Soon every inch of her lay there released. Not till that moment did she know how tightly strung she had been for the last forty hours and more. Then, how steadily and how strangely the deathliness of fatigue went rippling along her arms, along her legs, and away. Here at least, Aunt Purdy had been right. One thought wrongly of the body as of something single and upright. Truly, it was no more than a handful of various weights strung loosely on a string. Joanna knew that she was safe now from what had threatened her. Her body, still bereft, was safe. Her defeated brain was laved by the clear waves of nothingness. She lay and lay till time for her was not. Slowly her breathing altered. It grew deeper, milder, more regular, and at last, in the sure knowledge of sleep, she returned to her bed. It was now that there sounded in her soothed ear a small, sweet, forgotten voice of childhood. At Duntavi, Long ago, her bed had stood within hearing of the house cistern. Here, in the same room with her, by a curious chance, was the water tank of the hotel. It was hidden in a cupboard, and in the daytime she had only dully recognised a familiar presence by certain muffled thrummings and spoutings and sudden gushings. Through the night, as yet, she had marked no sound at all. But now, in this secret hour before dawn, when the rest of the world was asleep, and Joanna was waiting in quietness till sleep should come to her, the water began to speak. It started unaccountably out of the silence with exquisite precision. Drip, 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 
drip, drop, drop, drippit, drippitit, drippipitipiti, went the tiny, sylvan, interminable cadenza. Like silver its music tinkled, like seed pearls, like icicles, so fine and clear and absolved that it was an ecstasy to hear, a keen ecstasy quite purged of any dross of excitement. Steadily the singing would go on for a bar or two, tone after perfect tone. Then, like a rill that leaps under starlight, it would scatter its drops in a spray of grace notes. On it went, sometimes singing, sometimes speaking, modulating continually from one delicate, undreamed-of rhythm to another. And though it was a voice from childhood, Joanna had never truly heard it before. It was the still, small voice of a new birth, of a new life, of a new world. It was a new voice, but it was the oldest of all the voices, for it was the voice before creation, secure, unearthly, frail as filigree, yet faithful as a star. End of section 29